welcome back everyone. Episode 2 of the Performance Principles Podcast coming up shortly. Firstly, just a quick thank you to everyone who tuned in and listened to the first episode with Chris Wokes. Uh, thanks if you shared it or if you liked it or retweeted it. Uh, I really enjoyed the whole process so it's great to know that some of you enjoyed it too and hopefully you guys took something from that chat. Just a reminder as well that you can interact with the podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you'll find us at 4 underscore principles. So any queries or questions about the podcast or anything that you hear, feel free to get in touch. Right, let's get stuck in with episode two of the Performance Principles podcast. Today's guest is former Wales international rugby player Ian Goff. Ian is a vastly experienced player with over 60 games for his country, including being a member of the winning Grand Slam team in 2008. He had over 36 nation appearances and he also featured in the 2007 World Cup. He represented all major clubs in Wales and he also played in the English Premiership with London Irish. During the chat, we spoke about how he evolved his own personal game to keep up with the changing rules and laws of rugby. We discussed certain psychological aspects that he dealt with throughout his career. And we also spoke about the influence of Warren Gatland and what it was like to work under him as a coach. So without further ado, here's episode two of the podcast with Ian Goff. Enjoy. Well, Ian Goff, good evening. Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. I just want to first start off by um, talking about uh, the game of rugby and how it's changed. So you had a you had a 20-year career. Um, you had a 13-year international career, winning 64 caps for Wales. From a technical point of view uh, and thinking about the evolving laws of the game, how different was rugby from when you first started to when you finished? And then also, could you talk to us a little bit about your positional role within the team? Um, so being in the second row and how you had to evolve your game over the course of your career. Yeah, yeah, changed a fair bit because uh, you know, I, I came in just after the game went professional. Um, it went professional in 95 and 96 was my first season, so about a year after. So we didn't embrace it as much in Wales either back then. We were, we were sort of way behind sort of the curve to start with. So it was, it was still an amateur game really, but we were getting paid and we were core professionals. So uh, we really did have to catch up and it was when performances, especially internationally, weren't sort of uh, the consistency wasn't there, that uh, we realised, hang on, we had to be a bit more professional and sort of adapt with how the game was changing and evolve ourselves. It wasn't just a, you know, a bit of a scrap fest in the middle of the pitch and, and a trudge from ruck to ruck, you know, breakdown to breakdown. It was actually, uh, you know, it was, it was evolving, you know, and, and with money being involved with the game and professionalism, then... Uh, then it set up, but I think it took us till you know around about you know, the 2000 mark before we started really starting to get it and starting to realize that we had to put things in place. And it came with a massive loss out in South Africa. We took we had quite a few injuries, uh, the likes of the Gareth Thomases and Martin Williams, some very big players, the Rob Howleys, uh, Scott Quinnells, sort of pulled out the tour. And, uh, and we had a thumping, the worst defeat Wales have ever had. So it was a 96 points to 13 thumping out in Loftus Facefeld in the in Pretoria against the box. And uh, and from then, I think the, the chairman, Sataska Watkins, no longer with us, uh, he's made a speech which, you know, if you were a bock, you would have just, you know, you'd have brushed it off. But uh, it was quite poignant. And he said, you know, we get, we're we going to have to change. We're going to have to evolve. We're going to have to sort of put a lot more effort in uh, into the detail of, of our game. And uh, and we're going to have to really expand it if we want to compete with the, the best in the world. And I think within two years of that, we actually beat South Africa uh, we're in the first game of the Millennium Stadium 
and we were a reduced capacity. Uh, and we sort of took the scalp. And Gary Teichman, that was the captain at the time, lost his role. The coach, Nick Mallet, lost his job, never coached South Africa again. And, and it sort of it, it gave us, it sort of launched us really into that new era. But it's it still after that, it still took us a fair few years to actually get consistency and uh, uh, get going properly. The same with my position. Uh, it really evolved over the years. You know, the front five forward. Uh, I played five initially and then four. Uh, but, you know, they're considering we're just side by side. There was quite a bit of difference in the positions in uh, in those roles. Uh, and, you know, it, it went from like a, an arm wrestling sort of position where you just had to lock it out. You just sort of had to... You know, be strong in contact areas, scrummages, you know, line out wise, driving line outs, uh, and you had to be that tight forward. Uh, it became very more, uh, very much more expansive. Then it became almost a, a back five rather than a front five. It was a front row and a back five. You know, you, you yeah. see it now the likes of Mario Atoje that plays second row, Courtney Laws, uh, Alan Wynne Jones, who's our record winning captain and uh, British Lions captain as well. Uh, he's a six, in my opinion. You know, Courtney Laws and Atojade play six as well, or in the back row, as well as second row. Uh, and it's become a bit like that. And, you know, the athleticism and the intensity just absolutely, you know, as my career sort of uh, progressed, uh, it just upped and upped and upped. And, you know, towards the end, it sort of passed me by the last couple of years. Uh, and I could realise that, you know, it was, uh, whereas I was the old school second row, it wasn't like that anymore. It was almost back rows were uh, adjusting into the second rows. Uh, and so it, the intensity and the and the sort of um, the, the speed endurance of the game really sort of uh, evolved in my position. Did you have to upskill yourself in terms of technique as well as the as the game evolved and how that position of yours evolved? Yeah, technique wise, you always had to, and that was part of the game. You know, where, you know, tactically and, and technique wise, they would bring a new law in, they bring a like a, like a breakdown law or uh, a scrummaging law which they did, uh, different line-out laws, uh, and you would have to adjust, you'd have to evolve your techniques. And that was, I think that was a part of being a professional athlete. It's uh, as the game changes uh, and, you know, people analyse you to within an inch of your life. So it's trying to sort of, you know, keep it one step ahead of that and almost reverse analysing them uh, for what they're doing. So, yeah, you had to, you, had to, you know, as, as the game sort of changed and techniques and tactics changed, you had to sort of think on your feet and you had to sort of keep up the speed as well. Otherwise, you'd be left behind. And I saw players fall by the wayside that couldn't quite keep up with the curve. You know, they couldn't quite keep that level up, uh, of, you know, a progression. Uh, and then they just sort of, they had a weak area in the game and it got exploited. Uh, and then off they went. You know, a, a big example for Wales was Adam Jones, was a uh, prop, you know, fantastic tight end we had, played British Lions. Uh, and they changed the scrum laws a little bit. And for a year or so, he struggled uh, in that. And he lost his Welsh position and, and he didn't play for Wales then. He sort of, and he almost had 100 caps, right? So he almost had a huge amount, but just one twin, you know, a little tweak in the laws, one or two tweaks in the laws. And it really affected his game to the fact that he couldn't really, you know, he struggled. And, you know, say he struggled is a bit a bad way of putting it. it. It took him quite a bit longer to sort of overcome that change and by that time someone else had taken his position and he'd lost his slot for Wales that's really interesting that isn't it and even even someone as experienced as that guy and as obviously as talented as him at some point in your career you're going to have to change and evolve with the times to, to keep your pace and I suppose that's part and parcel of being a professional athlete like you said 
Yeah, yeah, and injury hits you as well. Injury hits you, and there's always some, there's always someone new coming up in the scene, and it's, you know, it's, it's trying to keep that edge and keep that, uh, and keep doing what you're doing well, but increasing other parts of your game to stop the new whippersnapper coming in and snatching your position. But you know, competition is yeah. a great thing, and it and it keeps you on your edge and keeps you on your toes, which is what uh, what every coach wants. Yeah. So if you think about, um, you know, when you finished finished playing. And you had all that experience and you knew everything that you knew. If you could have then gone back to the start of your career, is there anything that you'd have, any aspect of your game that you'd have emphasised more, tried to develop more, um, maybe a certain quality, physical quality or technical quality that you'd have emphasised a lot more going through your career? Yeah, well, I, I was, you know, I was, I was a good trier, if you want. I, I wasn't the tallest, I wasn't the biggest, the, you know, the heaviest. The most skillful, you know, you know, my speed stats. Everything was very low. I, I sort of made a career working pretty hard and grafting and and doing the sort of the dirty work. But uh, yeah, it, it was the speed endurance. The speed endurance side, I think, was how it evolved too. And if I could have worked on that at a younger age, um, through and just really hammered the sort of repeated speed and you know high intensity, low recovery sort of work. You know, to start with the game, it was a lots of it was bleep tests and three k runs and with your fitness. Which yeah. didn't recreate the game hardly at all, you know. But you know, the, the conditioning aspect changed dramatically as as it went through. It got much more scientific, uh, much more game specific uh, as you went through. So yeah, it was working on that area because not being the quickest and uh, you know not being the most powerful person, it was it was trying to get that to the top of its uh, the the top of the ability that I could play like that. Uh, and it's, it takes a while to to work that system, you know, to sort of adjust it and yeah. get it up. And and again, if you're up against someone that's naturally, you know, got a really sort of a powerful, sort of fast twitch, sort of speed endurance, sort of makeup, then then it's quite hard. So I was up against people like that, and it's uh, I say I had, to, I had to really sort of carve my niche out to sort of uh, so I could perform uh, and do what I did well to sort of keep my position. Okay, that's great, mate. Now, I just want to touch on the, the psychology of the game a little bit, really. So, um, due to the physicality of the game and its demands, it appears to me, you know, as someone I, I'm not a massive uh, rugby fan, I'm, I don't know much about the game, really, but it appears that the psych- psychological robustness of a player and a team is hugely important because of that physicality. How did the focus of the psychological development of players evolve during the career? Yeah, well, we were, we were way behind on that, to be honest. It was something that was an afterthought. It was... Uh... We were stuck in the old school a little bit of the uh, the old man up, the old man up phase, yeah. and, and yeah. other bits. You know, even like the concussions. You're not concussed. You've got your shoulder. You know, and it's it was all that sort of weird, you know rough, tough sort of alpha male sort of environment at times. Mm. Uh, and the, the sort of psychological side it sort of got left behind. Uh, I know Graham Henry when he came in, who ended up being a very famous New Zealand coach. He came in and he really sort of he liked that as well, but he. he was bringing people in, but it was a bit too generic. It was a bit too, uh, it, you know, it tried to encompass a whole group in one, which, you know, how we found out how, you know, how I, my development went, we realised that everyone's an individual and that's how the training changed. All the training was the same for everybody, at, you know, at the start. Yeah. But then, you know, sort of periodization and, you know, getting it position specific and, and mini and unit specific and the same with the psychology. It would, it had to be specific to the individual because what turns some one person on, you know, didn't turn the other person on, you know, it's uh, one person's wines, the other person's vinegar type thing. You know, towards the end, they really started, they took on board and it was just after I finished, it was starting to get 
a lot more prevalent where everything would be individualized and you know you'd have life coaches as well as psychologists everything's coming on board and uh, and just you know people could have chats with and, and discuss things with because everyone had their own things going on and no matter how good a player you were there you know life is life and you have these yeah. things and form to the top of your ability you have to be mentally firing as well as physically firing and it was something that we neglected for a long time and missed the detail with but uh you know further on towards the end of my career they were starting to realize that and starting to hit that detail so was there was there a bit of reticence from the players as well as as like the authorities did it take a bit of time for the players to buy into that type of stuff so i know from from my experience as well when i was a young player when i first started i was quite hesitant to to sort of think about the future because it seemed so far away. You know, I was 18, 17, 18, uh, and, and to think about the end of my career just seemed a bit bit pointless, really. So it took a while for me to, to get in that frame of mind. Yeah, I struggled as well. So I, I played almost 20 years, and I struggled towards the end, didn't know what to do, uh, didn't know how to transition. I got involved with a military charity just for that, uh, which was helping the military boys transition. On yeah. military personnel, not boys, uh, personnel transition into employment. Um, again, if you, it's one of these, it was a massive flaw in our game. It was all about performance. Everything was about performance and, and getting a, a sort of team performance on the weekend. Nothing was about the player and yeah. nothing was about you know, the, the mental side of it, the mental wellness side of it, plus you know, the after-career side of it. And all those weighed heavy on players. You know, yeah. and the highest, you know, I found it weighed heavy on the highest level of players as well, British Lions and really worried because they, they've been to that pinnacle. Yeah. They worry and the anxiety about being just an ordinary person in City Street, so to speak, was yeah. quite daunting. You know, it created a bit of anxiety. So uh yeah, there was it was, you know, again we had to get over the alpha male uh thing and, and a couple of high profile players have actually sort of come out and, and said they've got a problem and you know and, and quite tough boys as well, boys you wouldn't expect it. And it's yeah. sort of it's thrown a light on it a lot lately. Uh, and it's sort of enabled people to think that, you know what, it's, it's not the taboo now. It's something we can chat about. But in the environment, it took someone, like a life coach type thing. So it was a psychologist, psychology trained, but you know, yeah. somebody boys could just have a chat to and then load on. And, and then from then, the solution could be found. But it was, it had to be done in the right way. You know, if you just put a psychologist in front of a bunch of boys and said, right then, tell him your deepest fears. And your, your, yeah. the players always feel like, all oh, right, he's going to tell a coach and I'm going to get dropped. You know, I think I'm weak. You know, it, it took a bit of trust for it to sort of evolve and, and work, really. Yeah, we've had similar in, in cricket. We've had um, through the PCA, there's there's a, a personal development and welfare program. Um, so every county has has like one of those managers that you, you can speak to individually. Uh, and that's built up and progressed over the years. You know, they support with lots of things like dual aspirations and putting plans in place for life after cricket. They do a rookie camp now every year. So they get um, all the first year players who sort of made their debut the year before. They get them for a camp at the start of the, the following season. Uh, and I think it's all really important to to get people and get young, young players particularly thinking ahead. You can't plan early enough, I don't think. Um, so if you think about it personally, you as a player, were you susceptible to you know, pre-match nerves, self-doubts, etc.? Uh, and if so, how did you manage those during competition and games? Yeah, I was a bit weird like that. I, I saw you used to thrive on being a bit scared. So I, I played a bit out of fear, which is uh, probably if you speak to a psychologist, it's probably the wrong way to do it. It's quite negative. But I used to feel, you know, I, as I go into games, again, if I, you know, if I don't play my best now, I'm going to embarrass myself and I'm going to, you know, 
it's, it's just going to all come apart for me. So I, I used to, that used to give me my edge, I suppose. If I go into a game a little bit, not complacent, but sort of confident and you know, not worrying, not thinking, you know, I'm playing in front of a test match, for example, I'm playing in front of 75,000 people live, plus there's 3 million people watching, plus there's, you know, the associated. Then, you know, I used to go in, they were easier to get up for the test matches because of that. But mm-hmm. some of the regional matches, when you had a bit of an unfancy team, you know, I, I really had to sort of get myself psyched up really and really sort of put myself in a frame of mind and, and, and you know, put weights on myself really. I'd weight myself down with, you know, if I don't, if I don't do something today, if I don't really perform, then I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself and, and be like that. Other players in the team were different. They'd come in and they would be laughing and joking almost an hour or so before kickoff and really relaxed and just strutting about and, I'd have to sort of put my headphones on. I'd be watching. I had to do some. I did some psychological stuff. I'd have to do um, some visualization work. Okay, you know, yeah. After I dislocated my shoulder, so I dislocated my shoulder back about in 2000. But you know, later my, it, it sort of played on my mind a little bit. If I if I wasn't the right frame of mind, I, I wouldn't tackle properly. You know, I, I pull out. So you, so you use you use that visualization to get over that fear of that tackle after, after the shoulder up. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it, it's a thing. You know, and I found it with lots of sports. Speaking to the the guy that helped me was, you know, it, it was just that fear. Maybe, maybe it was a fast bowler that's twinged his shoulder going through and he didn't quite want to sort of throw the same ball maybe mm. uh, because of the pain that he felt and, and the associated injury in rehab. Mine was the same. I did it hitting a ruck, did it sort of in a tackle-ish sort of situation. And I was just finding I was pulling out of certain, you know, uh, physical sort of uh, battles uh, yeah. just tucking shoulders in and not tackling properly. And it was causing associated injuries as well. So, yeah, I, I started a program of uh, visualization and chatting through, and, and it really worked. Within within a month or so, I was back tackling properly after two years of struggling, and then within six to eight weeks of it, you know, within two months, I was back to my usual sort of putting really big hits in. And but again, after that, it, it still took work. I still had to keep, you know, to keep the triggers uh, and keep the visualization and sort of memory stuff going as well. I played around with uh, visualization as well a little bit in my career, but I could never sort of, uh, I could never get used to it. I could never uh, get to a stage where I felt comfortable and I always felt distracted when I was doing it. Um, did you get that? And did you have to do it for a certain period of time? Did you have to just battle through? Yeah, it was quite tough. It's sort of like a meditation type thing, isn't it? So, it, you know, to start with, it, it was built up very well. The coach that was helping me with it was was pretty good. So, he, you know, it was built up for little scenarios. I go the scenarios that I was having a bit of a block on, as such. I'd have to sort of repicture the scenario, run it through my mind, and and then I had to try and build it up so it was in colour. Then I'd have to try and you know hear the crowd, what the crowd was doing, and have a, a little tape made up, you know, some clips of when I was doing it well and how I was following through because I, I was struggling with the follow through. Uh, so a lot of golfers, you know, different things will have a, a block as well you know, as I was li- uh, listening to it and looking into it. And it was a similar sort of thing. It was a, and I was having this little block. So, you know, I had to build it up so I could almost, so when I was getting good at it, you're right, if the concentration was going, I'd have to sort of pull it back, pull it back. Yeah. Uh, and like any sort of training, you know, a new skill, you would break it down to the smallest piece and then just ease it up, ease it up and add increments yeah. onto it. And that's what I had to do to the point where, you know, I quiet room, dark, I would sort of, just really run through it and watch clips of when I was doing things well and then recreate those with a, in a visualization sort of mode. So it was, yeah, it's sort of like a little meditation as it is now, but uh, yeah. it really worked for me. So it was, uh, yeah, it really did work for me. 
Oh, top draw, brilliant. So if you move on now to um, thinking about teams and the team culture. So for the, for the best teams that you've played in for you know club or country, how were those team cultures cultivated, and what did the effective leadership look like in those cultures, whether it be captain or coach or senior players? Yeah, we've I've had a mix of all sorts over the years. So I've seen a lot of coaches being departed internationally as well. Yeah, lots of little scandals and and everything like that. But um, you know the the, the best environments. You know, we had a, a South African coach was the first one early in the early ish in my career. Uh, and he was very good. And you know, the, the training sessions were quite long, but he was very charismatic. I think his charisma sort of carried us through, really believed in his message and everybody bought in and we had a good side. Uh, and we really bought into that and he Who was know, that for? We had uh, for Newport. So it was a guy called um, Ian McIntosh. So he was a South African coach from Durban. And uh, you know, we really and we had some amazing South African players playing for us as well. So we had some big senior players. He was a, a revered coach as well. So everyone's respect was there, but he had a lot of charisma as well. And he was a good bloke. So we really everyone really bought into it and the environment was good. And we you know boys would mess up, but there was there were penalties and there were, you know, there was jovial penalties and we had silly things like dog of the week competitions and if anyone messed up too much they would uh, you know they'd have a special jersey to wear and, and other things. Yeah, we had a similar one when I was playing for Worcester. We had a Dick of the Day shirt that we used to <laughs> we used to diss out. Yeah, oh, we have, I had it. Well, the forwards mainly had it because uh, <laughs> backs never used to get into trouble. They didn't, they didn't used to do anything of any you know, of any note to sort of get into trouble or, or mess up. But uh, it really it sort of kept us going. You know, even training was long. We trained as much as any other team I'd been there, but we used to love going. You know, it was uh, you just built that atmosphere and environment. You know, we got on well. He, any sort of descent in the team, he, he had his finger on the pulse with certain senior players, and he knew how to sort of pull the strings um, to, you know, to pull back training, add training, you know, pull people aside, or or just give us, you know, a game of golf on a on a Tuesday afternoon. Right, the boys, you know, the tees are booked. You know, you need to you need to relax and you need to sort of get off some steam. That was one extreme of environment. Uh, over the years, uh, Warren Gatland. Uh, probably the most successful Welsh coach in the Test Arena. So that was a club arena, Test Arena with Wales. Then Warren Gatlin came in and, and he put his own spin on his environment. And you know, it was the detail that uh, that he and the management, his management team, put in place there was was pretty special. To be fair, it was pretty incredible. And even some players would be a bit upset and would be dropped. And you know, he was quite brutal with how he dropped you and didn't involve you. And yeah, but you know, still everyone had the respect and and they would go through it. But he, uh, yeah, he, he created a very good detail. You, you wanted you to enjoy yourselves. You trained very hard. It was a, a hugely intense sessions. Um, but uh, you know, he, he changed the way we trained. To be fair, and it was a uh, it really sort of it really came through well for Wales and probably the most consistent period Wales have ever had. You played in his first game in charge. It was against England uh, uh, Twickenham, I think. Um, and I think it was was it the first Wales win at Twickenham for twenty years, um, yeah. And then, and then you went on to win the Grand Slam that year. So you know that was only a few months after you exited the World Cup in the group stage. So what was the Warren Gatland effect? Yeah, uh, yeah. So we we just been uh, beaten by Fiji, humiliated, humiliated really, uh, in the World Cup in '07. Uh, we got beaten by South Africa by a cricket score then in November, and then he had three weeks to sort of turn it around. So you couldn't really change that much, you know. That you know, certain coaches wanted two or three, up to four years to the next World Cup to be able to sort of uh, to really sort of stamp the impression on on the game. 
on the team and the environment. But he came in within week one, completely changed. No, he didn't completely change, but he, he changed the intensity how we trained, which was a complete change from what we were doing. The sessions were an hour, two hours long. Was that the most important thing, do you think? Yeah, to start with, yeah. Yeah, because we, we weren't training. We weren't recreating the game <laughs> in mm. training. So we were... Uh, yeah, we were just, it was just long, laborious sessions. It was, you know, lots of talking shops going on there. And he came straight in and, you know, we briefed. And uh, it was, we were sort of big with the briefings. Uh, so we knew exactly what we were doing on the training page, exactly what was expected of us. And the training sessions were absolutely flat out. They were absolutely sort of redlined. Uh, yeah. There wouldn't be any, you know, much chance for chatting around. You know, that would be done beforehand in many unit sessions or pre-briefings. Uh, and it would be, you know, but you'd finish and you, you wouldn't realise it'd be over. It'd be over before you knew it. But it yeah. would be at an intensity that we hadn't been to before. And that recreated really a test match environment. So we were actually going into a test match, um, actually training as though we were, you know, as, as the game would. So it, it sort of, uh, we were getting less surprises on, on, a, on a weekend. But yeah, we, we had one in England for 20 years. Uh, and he put things in place. He picked, he was quite bold with the selection, best team at the time with the Ospreys. I think he picked 13 or 14 Ospreys to start, which was incredible, really. Um, which in that first 15? Was, in the first 15, which is insane. But it worked. He did the same with the Lions. He picked, he picked a load of Welsh. He picked about 12 Welsh players, I think, uh, and dropped people like Brian O'Driscoll, who was an amazing player, had a, had a fantastic career. Uh, and dropped him for one of the Welsh guys, which still now gets uh, gets stick from the Irish, even though it was the biggest score whale uh, the Lions have ever won, you know, won by against Australia. So it worked. So we had that we had that knack and that real sort of instinct of knowing exactly what to do. The psychological side of his coaching was really good. How to build the confidence up because we had we just lost to Fiji in South Africa, and he just had that little knack, little subliminal things all the time, little pointers, little key words he was putting in little um you know little traits that he had with, with everything was about building the confidence up and you know letting us believe that we were as good as the team that we were playing because England were pretty formidable at the mm -hmm. time and I said we hadn't beaten them there in, in that amount of uh, that amount of time and we went there and it was funny enough they played it they put it on BBC uh, on the weekend uh, they replayed the game because uh, yeah. there's no sport on at the moment with <laughs> yeah. COVID going on did you uh, walk it back? I was out the garden working and I had about 20 text messages of uh you know, tackles that I'd made and probably the odd mistake that I made in that game. But it was a, it was quite an epic game and, and we leaped on from there. You know, that was that was his starting, you know, that was his start. Uh, from there then, you know, we really sort of evolved the culture uh, and, and increased, you know, and he basically set the bar higher and he, we became, whereas we were quite an inconsistent uh, country playing test team, uh, he gave us consistency and he, he gave us a standard that we uh, that we had to meet, and you know, and and he wanted us to have fun as well. He, he made sure we had fun at times, uh, and he was a big advocate of that. But then, yeah. you know, the detail with you know the likes of Sean Edwards coming in, the people that he picked around him were really important. He had you know trust and faith in those guys to do the job, and it really sort of gave us edges in different areas that we didn't have an edge in before. Amazing, mate. And and what was he like uh, in the change room at halftime? What was his communication style like? Uh, you, know, you would let a lot of it go to, you know, he'd have his little bits to say, only he would drip feed little messages. It wouldn't be on block, you know, it wouldn't be 30 things to think about. You know, Sean Edwards would have his, his say, the unit, you know, uh, the forwards coach would have, you know, have a, a sort of unit chat as well. 
quite very specific very you know this is you know and you know analysis will be in the change room straight away this is what we needed to work on immediately uh, and you know two or three little points uh, at any point and then you know the other message be drip fed in the second half he wasn't a shouter and a bowler although at times you know he dropped one of the captains uh, at full time basically at the end he told him you know you're in front of everyone you will be captain of this country again um, that performance was on, which was you know a bit how did, brutal. How did that go down? But uh, um, yeah, he, he ruled with an iron fist, but you had the respect for him, and you just everyone it was you know you knew he meant business. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you know he, he dropped some pretty high profile players and wouldn't pick them again, even though they were playing. They got back playing well. It's almost like you know once you once you'd lost his sort of faith, you, you were gone, and he you know he wasn't afraid who you were to do that as well. So. Yeah, he was you know quite a quiet but guy. He's quite I found him quite hard to talk to myself. I didn't have massive conversations with him, but a, a good guy that I you know massive respect for the team because you know everything he he seemed to have the golden touch. You know he seemed to know exactly how to sort of deal with the press and, and opposition coaches. You know he he'd win the psychological games against those as well. You know, even yeah. when it looked like he wouldn't, he, he would manage to pull the ace. You know as, as a tactician, he was he was pretty superb. The game against England. Uh, last season before the World Cup, you know, England were coming down and having beaten Ireland by a cricket score in Ireland, smashed France at home. They were coming to us, you know, when we were lambs to the slaughter. Uh, and he, you know, the tactics and the strategy that he put in place in the two week window that he had was quite exceptional. You know, I was, I was commentating that day and it was, it was a, it was a joy to watch because you could see exactly, you know, what had been going on. And the work that he'd done to turn that, you know, the tactics around of the team, because we hadn't, we didn't play very well the first two games. We struggled against France, out in France, just beat them. Yeah. Struggled out in Italy, just beat them. Uh, and then this game was, you know, the, the tactics were so spot on, it caught England absolutely cold. Uh, and it launched us through to a Grand Slam tournament. Can we go into, the, so, go into the detail a little bit more on the tactics there? Um, so what was it about how he approached that game? Yeah, England. England had a very powerful game. I wasn't involved with this, so I'm I'm watching from the sidelines here. But England yeah. had a very powerful game. They were, you know, they were very dominant. They were very dominant front. Very, you know, a, a very aggressive defence that was, uh, you know, the cut your time, cut your space, uh, sort of very aggressive confrontational game plan, uh, aerial, uh, very aerial game plan as well with how they kicked and competed. They kicked a lot of ball to try and put pressure on you to play out and will push you back into the defensive systems, basically. Now, uh, you know, he came up with a, you know, a bit of a master plan, how he, how he attacked. Um, they couldn't sort of blitz because we were hitting a lot of balls up, up tight. So it was stopping a blitz in effect. They, you know, if they, could, they would rush up, but the ball would all, you know, it would stay in a channel, in a very short channel. Uh, the aerial battle as well, we sort of put the aerial battle back on. Uh, you know, some of our big game players, you know, you could, you could tell what they'd been working on and they absolutely aced it. You know, they aced yeah. So what England threw at them, they dealt with, but then put it back onto England uh, and attacked England at their own game at times as well. So it, it was clever that could, because we hadn't played very well the first two games, England hadn't had anything to analyse us on. Uh, yeah. they, they didn't have many points to analyse us because we played poor. There was not many points to pick up. Whereas because England had played so well the first two games, we had everything to break their game down. So for a one match... You know, for one match only, you know, you could put the tactics in place where, you know, England hadn't seen us play like that before because we hadn't played very well the first two games. Yeah, mm -hmm. we could, we really had all the indicators of what was making England tick and what was making their game play well. 
you know, ready to combat. So it was a really good um, uh, coaching uh, analysis sort of breakdown and, you know, and a strategy put in place off the, off the analysis. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of snuck up really because, uh, again, Eng- England didn't have anything to analyse on us. They, they just continued with the same game uh, that, was so, that worked so well the first two games, whereas we could sort of adapt and, uh, and spring a trap, basically. Excellent. Um, he, he singled you out for praise after, the, after a victory against Italy, but then he actually dropped you from the squad a few months later, I think. So how did he do that? How did he, how did he tell you that you were losing your place? And what was that experience like? And how did you force your way back in the team? Yeah, it was a, it was a tough one. Um, yeah, against Italy, I think I lost. I, you like that. His big, his big thing initially was to work hard. You know, he had a big work ethic in the team. And he simplified the game plan the first couple of years. And he had this big game plan. We were going to outwork the opposition. And it was going to take us 60, 70 minutes to really break them. But the way we were doing it would work the opposition. And really, you know, when they were tired, it would pull them about. And it would, uh, it would sort of stress them. Uh, and in that game, I think we played Italy. And I lost about a stone in weight in the game. The roof shut. It was a very hot, warm day. Uh, and I lost about five and a half kilograms of that in weight. So he sort of singled me out for that, that I'd, I'd worked so hard, I'd lost almost a stone in weight because, uh, you know, it was such a, and it was a, t- a tough physical game. Uh, and then, yeah, you, you'd fall on a sword, you know, if, if you didn't meet the standards, then I know we had a debrief sheet that would be put up in the change rooms so after we uh, in the team room. So, you know, after, you know, we debrief, uh, and each person have a little synopsis really off the coach and off the senior leadership team about, you know, whether we were good or bad or whatever. And it was quite brutal. And we'd actually, sadistically, we'd read each other's sort of uh, quotes. And, what was that and, like? Uh, what was that like? Right to it, was, uh, it was brutal. And his big thing was, if, if, we, if I don't, you know, if I don't like you, I'm, you know, if I'm, if I'm getting stuck into you, basically, if I'm abusing you, if I'm really sort of having a go at you, it means we like you because we want you to get better and we want to, we want to push the standards. But, you know, if we, we're not talking to you, that's when we don't like you because you know, we, we're starting to get out of our minds and we don't, we don't want you here. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was some fun reading, really, watching, you know, reading your own and thinking, oh, Christ, that's pretty brutal. Uh, and then reading the other guys then to see who had the worst one. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite a tough environment. And that Sean Edwards was quite a tough bloke. But it worked, you know, and it, it, it worked. And as long as you knew that it wasn't personal, it was... Uh, it was to get you, you know, to raise the standards, then then you're happy with that. Excellent, mate. And and just to finish, I know we've we've touched on it a little bit briefly, um, but in your experience of, of playing, um, what's the most important aspect of of building a team culture that that wants to go out there and put performances in week in week out? I think you just have to enjoy each other's company as well. I think you've got to, you have know, the friendships involved. It's got to be fun. Uh, you've got to want to be there. Uh, and I've been in environments where you haven't want to be there. You want to get in your car and get home as soon as you as soon as you finish. Yeah. And get back home. But uh, you know the best teams I played with. You know you, you wanted to be there. I know uh, like a Rob Baxter in Exeter in Exeter Chiefs in the English League. Uh, he's very specific on his culture, uh, and it's you know it's sometimes it's right the bus is coming home. None of you drive because you're all going to have a beer on the bus. Uh, you make sure you've got a lift waiting for you when you come home. We're all spending this time together. Uh, you know, and he analyzes players that he buys in on will they fit into my team culture? Will they fit in? Not just he's the best player 
they have to fit in with the other boys. Yeah, it's so uh, important, isn't it? Getting, getting them worked really well. Massively. And, and, you know, he's, I think he's leading the way in the English league, you know, for the last few years with how, how they recruit, uh, but just the team dynamic and, and how they treat their players. And, you know, you could be a, uh, a six cap British lion coming in because you haven't played a great deal for that team for Exeter, then you, you have your, your little hook at the side there. You, you don't have the, you know, the, the person that's played the 100 games that he could be in your position. He has the primary spot. You have to earn your slot above him, no matter what you've done internationally. You know, you have to earn it in that environment. So it, it sort of brings people down to earth. Anyone that thinks they're above their station gets brought down pretty quickly. And it's done with banter and it's done... Uh, that's amazing, know, isn't it? That's amazing. I can't... Im- social I can't Im- aspect as well. I can't imagine... Um, to any other environments where that would, where that would fly with someone who's played. Yeah, and it's accepted as well. It, it is accepted. You know, I, think, I can't think of it. It's Scottish fullback that's just signed it. Um, oh, his name's escaping me now. But uh, he's gone there and he's a young lad from Gwent, actually from Gromit, played like 100 odd games, testimonial. Uh, and this guy's come in and, you know, he, 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 has, the, he has the small slot in the, in the side and he has to earn his way up. You know, mm-hmm. you know, this kid has never played for internationally or anything like that. No, he's earned his stripes at Exeter. Uh, and he needs to do it, you know, and this guy needs to prove himself, even though he's a British Lion. So, uh, you know, it's, it's quite unique. And they know this coming in there, then they're briefed. And, and that's why they want to go there, because they know it's a special place to be. Brilliant. That was brilliant. Um, I really enjoyed that. Thanks, Ian. Um, really appreciate your time. Um, thank you for coming on and uh, all the best for you and whatever you do in the future. Thank you very much. Top man. Cheers, Rich. There you go, guys. That wraps up episode two of the Performance Principles podcast. Thanks for listening. Hopefully you've all been able to take away something from the chat. And that's what it's all about. That's why we're here. Please continue to like and share the podcast if you're enjoying it. Recommend it to your friends and family if you think they'll benefit from it. And if you're feeling really generous, you can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks again, guys. Tune in again next time.